This is Mind Bites, a series for Philosophy Bites with me, David Edmonds. And me, Nigel Warburton. There are lots of types of dog. Rottweilers, poodles, Labradors, German Shepherds, Jack Russell Terriers, and so on. You know what I mean when I use these terms. But in understanding them, are you having to conjure up mental images of these various breeds? The idea that we can understand concepts because we have some sort of image of them is philosophically unfashionable. But Jesse Prince thinks it's the correct account. Jesse Prince, welcome to Mind Bites. Very good to be here. The topic we're going to focus on is thinking with pictures. Now, it seems to me that when I think about a dog, I get a mental image of a dog. Why would anybody think that isn't the case? With you, I agree this should be the default view. I think it's the common sense view, the one we get through introspection. But throughout the history of philosophy, especially beginning with the rationalists of the modern period, the mental picture view came under strenuous attack. And in the 20th century, it's really been a minority position. The majority of philosophers have believed that we don't think in pictures. We think in something more like words. So let's go with the rationalists. Why would anybody argue that when I'm thinking like that, there is no image in my head? Well, for someone like Descartes, who was very mistrustful of the senses, he was concerned that when we see things, when we visualize things, we're dealing with ephemera. The appearance of a dog changes every time the dog moves, for instance. And of course, different dogs look different from each other. So if you want a concept that can cover all dogs, you need to abstract away from these surface details and represent it in some way that moves beyond the senses. Descartes also gave clever arguments. So, for example, he claims that if we conceptualize a thousand-sided figure, a geometrical figure with a thousand sides, what's called the chilegon, we can distinguish that in thought from a figure with 999 sides. But then he challenges us to visualize both, pointing out that by appearance the two would be indistinguishable. Now, I'm sure there are some geometry specialists who claim to be able to visualise that, but I certainly can't visualise the difference between those two. But that might only work for very complex geometrical figures. It doesn't refute the idea that most of our thinking is in images. I don't even think it works for the Chileagon example. I mean, in a way, it's an ironic choice because when you're dealing with geometry, you are dealing with something that can be drawn, can be drafted. And while we might not be able to see a Chileagon at a single glance and count its sides, we certainly could execute a drawing of one. And I think mentally the equivalent would be some sort of confirmation procedure where we would trace along with our mind's eye side by side and check off each line till we were able to confirm that we were looking at a figure with a 100 or a 1,000 sides. Now, Descartes wasn't the only great philosopher to claim that we don't think in images. Far from it. I mean, for example, Leibniz wrote an extensive line-by-line refutation of John Locke's work, where he made the case that we think in something like a mental language. And this was an idea, the lingua mentis, that had been taken over from medieval logicians. So really, throughout the history of philosophy, there had been many who were very strongly committed to the view that thought has very little to do with the senses. So this lingua mentis, it's a language of thought, and it can exist even if somebody doesn't have an actual language, so that somebody who can't speak can still think. Is that right? That's a crucial point, Nigel, because in fact, the idea that we think in language is something that defenders of mental pictures would also endorse, but they would say we think in natural language. So when you hear a language like English, you perceive it. You perceive its sounds, or you might see the words written on a page, or the gestures for someone who signs. 
those are things that we can then re-entertain through sensory imagery. So you can use language as a kind of sensory representation. The lingua mentis is thought to be an innate language, a language that all human beings share regardless of the natural languages they speak. So when you hear a sentence in English, according to the Leibniz view, you translate it into your lingua mentis, and it's in the lingua mentis that your thoughts actually occur. And this is a reaction against John Locke's view. I wonder if you could just sketch the main features of that one. Well, John Locke really begins his seminal work, The Essay Concerning Human Understanding, with a critique of innateness. And he was very concerned that a commitment to innate ideas was leading to all kinds of intolerance. So this was a period in the age of exploration where people were encountering cultures that were, for example, not raised under the influence of Christianity. And there was a question, are these people even human beings? Do they understand the the word and the teachings of God? Have they willfully rejected them? And the idea that we have innate knowledge of these divine instructions, and not only that, but rules of logic, a basic understanding, Western understanding of the world, was very central to the tactics of indoctrination, the tactics of this kind of colonial conversion and missionary work. Locke thought this was a kind of intolerance and that religion should be grounded, if anything, on reason, not on this innate revelation that was supposed by the missionaries. So he said, everything we learn, we learn through observation, and then we reason on the basis of those observations. To move from an innate knowledge system to a knowledge based on experience, he thought we needed to shift from the lingua mentis to an idea that grounded knowledge in something sensory, something experiential. So in Locke's view, experience writes on the tabula rasa, on the blank slate that is our mind. Yeah, his favorite metaphor was an empty cabinet, which has been somewhat ridiculed and and derided, though I think he makes a fairly strong case for it. What he's really trying to say is that when it comes to knowledge, beliefs about how the world is constructed, we really have very, very little. I mean, one of the most striking facts about human beings is that our extraordinary intellectual capacities in adulthood are certainly not in evidence in the early months of life. One sort of way to put it is that human beings are born just astonishingly stupid. This little babbling lump can come to philosophize in just a couple of decades' time, and what happens in that stage of development is a tremendous learning, and that learning process needs to be explained. Locke said that experience is clearly our teacher. It's through observation of others, it's through socially transmitted knowledge and just sensory encounters with the world that we come to understand how things work. And how does that relate to this idea of imagery in the mind? Well, everyone has to agree that we have sensory capacity. We can smell, we can hear, we can see with our eyes, we can also feel our own bodies. We have emotional states that involve perceptions of how we're physically responding to the world around us. That's common ground for everyone. So Locke thinks that if learning is based on observation, based on experience, then we have to take these sensory foundations and use them to build up knowledge. So if you go to the example of a concept of dog. How do you understand what dogs are? Well, obviously, and everyone would agree with this, you can hear a dog, you can smell a dog, you can feel its fur, and you can see it. And that collection of images that we acquire upon dog encounters gets stored in the mind. And then when we think about dogs in their absence, we simply simulate these experiences. We bring up or draw together all of these prior experiences, maybe abstracting them into a kind of paradigm case, a prototype of what all the dogs we've seen are like, and we use that mental image or that collection of mental images to think about dogs in their absence. Now, a problem with that is it makes everybody's idea of dog different, unless two people have had exactly the same experience of dogs. 
this is an anxiety that really was used against the imagistic view at the turn of the 20th century, most famously by Frege. So Frege is really the father of analytic philosophy. He's the one who, who really launched the 20th century linguistic turn. And one of his real fears is that if people think in images, people won't be able to communicate. The way we understand a word will vary from person to person. Logic, communication, linguistic understanding all breaks down according to Frege. And when he advanced that argument, people found it very compelling. So even though many philosophers, I would say the majority of them before the 20th century, believe that we think using imagery, at least in part, that was a kind of death knell. That moment led people to think that imagery is just a non-starter. There's no way we can explain thought by appeal to something that's so varied. Another criticism of this line of thinking is that any visualization that we do is incredibly imprecise. When we reflect on, say, how many windows there are in our own home, if we visualize it, it's quite difficult to get an accurate mental representation that way. In the mid-20th century, really beginning in, uh, with people like Wittgenstein and then Anscombe and Ryle, there was a general skepticism about the whole idea of a mental image, the idea that there could be a picture in the head. And one of the ways to motivate that skepticism was to point out that thought, even in the case of imagistic thought, is more precise, is more committal on various things than our images tend to be. And sometimes the reverse is true as well. So you can have a thought that a cat is on the mat without any idea how large the mat is or the color of the cat. There's an example that you find in Daniel Dennett's work when he was writing a dissertation under Gilbert Ryle that we can visualize a tiger. So if somebody says, put an image of a tiger before your mind's eye, nobody seems to resist that instruction. They think they're doing that. But then ask them in the next breath, how many stripes does the tiger? in your mind have, and people can't count. So he says, when we're visualizing, when we take ourselves to be doing this, we're really not doing something pictorial at all. We're actually creating a description. He thinks we're creating a description at breakneck speed, which is so detailed or so available for new information on command that we mistake it for a mental picture, but it's nothing of the sort. I challenge anybody to count the stripes on a tiger in front of them, actually. It's not obviously an easy task. To me, that's precisely the right reply. In fact, I recently published a paper that included a photograph of a tiger, and I challenged the reader in the caption to simply count the stripes in the photograph. So here's an image that's much more stable than any we could draw before the mind's eye. And even so, the stripes merge into each other in ways that make them fundamentally uncountable. Well, from that answer, it's clear that you're sceptical of the view that there is this language of thought, that it's a language rather than imagery. How would you defend that view, though? Because there are some pretty compelling arguments on the other side. Well, first of all, I haven't been persuaded by any of the arguments on the other side. So the Fregean concern, Frege's concern that people can't communicate if they visualize things differently, to me is actually an argument that can be turned on its head because we do find failures of communication. We do find people with different sensory backgrounds coming to points of confusion with respect to their ability to understand each other as a function of those biographical differences. So I actually think that it's not the case that people share their concepts. They have have similarities of concepts that can be measured and quantified, but we often come apart in interesting ways, sometimes quite dramatic ways, that could be predicted by an image-based account that wouldn't come out on a linguamentous account. But beyond that, I think there are positive reasons for being an empiricist. So the empiricist is someone like Locke who thinks that perception and emotion are the foundations of thought, and much of the best evidence comes from recent work in neuroscience and psychology. Could you give an example of that? 
Well, first, with respect to neuroscience, one of the things we learned in textbooks about the brain prior to recent decades is that sensation occurs in the, in the periphery. So things like the occipital cortex or parietal cortex, these sort of hind quarters of the brain, are where sensory information comes in. And thinking was thought to take place in the frontal cortex. So we all think about frontal cortex as the seat of thought. And that was supposed to be fundamentally different than what's going on in the senses. But with neuroimaging technologies, what we've come to realize is two things. First of all, frontal areas are not amodal, as the term goes. They're not something that's completely abstract. They can be subdivided into areas that seem to be specifically responsive to visual information, auditory information, tactile information, and, and differentially so. But even more strikingly, you never see cognitive tasks being solved by frontal cortex alone. Instead, what they seem to do is reactivate the sensory periphery. So it's as if through thinking we have this great or orchestral process where there's a coordination system in the front of the brain that's able to reactivate the sensory areas so we can have a, a sensory simulation of the things that are not present before us. How does that avoid what's usually known as the homunculus problem? Because if I've understood you correctly, you seem to be saying that there's a kind of little cinema in our head, and then you've got to have somebody in the cinema watching the, the film in order to interpret it. So it puts the problem of meaning and understanding one stage further back. First, I should say, I do think this kind of worry, which I take quite seriously, would arise for lingua mentis equally. So who's the reader of this inert code? And I think the solution for both will really be something something like a use theory. The reader isn't an inner eye, isn't an inner agent who makes decisions about what to do with the images or interprets them. Rather, interpretation is our capacity to directly translate sensory information into decisions and into action. So if you see a tiger running towards you, the visual image that you generate of that face with its large fangs moving directly towards you can lead to an immediate behavioral response without an interpreter to say, this is a tiger. Now, we've talked about neuroscience in support of your position. You said there was another line which would support your position as well. What was that? Well, I think experimental psychology in some way has provided the best support for the empiricist picture. And here the experiments are varied, but what they all tend to show is that you can present somebody with a, with a cognitive task, a task that you might think could be done with your lingua mentis, and you can find evidence that sensory information is being used. A simple example of this is you can ask people what's called confirmation of feature tasks. So give somebody a word like a blender, and you can ask them about a feature of blenders. Are blenders loud? Are canaries yellow? Do leaves rustle? And are cranberries tart? And these are things that are so familiar, they're so overlearned, that we should be able to access them if we did have a mental language without any kind of sensory simulation. Uh, the questions are presented in language, and we should be able to just translate into mental language and answer. The sensory simulation view, the empiricist view, makes a quite surprising prediction, which is that to answer these questions, we actually bring up sensory records of these mentioned ideas. And to generate a prediction of the view, one thing that might come out is that if you were to ask about two auditory features consecutively, we'd be pretty fast at moving from one to the next. So is a blender loud? Yes. Do leaves rustle? Yes. That's still audition. You're thinking about sound. Very quick to do that. But if you go from is a blender loud to our cranberries tart, a gustatory feature, or canaries yellow, a visual feature, we should be slowed down. And work by Diane Pescher and her colleagues, a psychologist in the Netherlands, has confirmed that in fact we do slow down when we shift from one modality to another. 
Follow-up work has shown that if you give people a sensory working memory task, have them hold an image in their mind or a sound pattern in their mind, and then ask them similar questions, are leaves going to rustle while they're holding a melody in mind? Performance is degraded. So by occupying the senses, you can actually reduce performance on what should be a purely cognitive task. Some people say they just don't have any mental imagery. They don't visualize things. They just do stuff. Sometimes when I'm confronted with opponents of empiricism, I'm tempted to think that they're just two kinds of minds. They're rationalist minds and empiricist minds. It turns out that there is psychological research on just this question. So there are individual differences in the extent to which people report having visual imagery or other sensory imagery. Some people say they can very easily reproduce a melody in their head or visualize something so they can put that tiger before the mind's eye and tell you what direction it's facing and what colors it is and so on. Others say they can't do this at all. So people started to wonder, are these just different kinds of minds? And they put it to the test. We know with visual imagery, there are certain spatial sensitivities that can come out behaviorally. So if you ask somebody to rotate their mental image, there's actually a time course of that rotation, such that if you give somebody a figure to memorize and then say, what would it look like from this other position, their speed at answering accelerates to a function of how close the second position is to the original. If it's a very skewed change, very dramatic change, they'll be slower in giving a response. People who claim not to visualize, not to have sensory images, perform in exactly the same way. The actual time course of their responses is indistinguishable from people who claim to be visualizers. So it does look like the difference here is not in whether sensory imagery is used, but in the accessibility of that imagery to consciousness. Does that mean you could have unconscious imagery? Exactly so. So somebody who claims not to be using visual or sensory imagery, they must be. So the only explanation is that this is going on unconsciously. There's no reason to doubt that this is possible. If we define an image as a stored record of a sensory state, in the case of visual images, you can go further and say it's something that's spatially arrayed. It's something that has parts that are organized in space, such that some are closer to each other and others are further away. All of those accounts of what imagery is, a stored sensory record with spatial organization, could occur outside of conscious awareness. Do you think part of the incentive of focusing on the language of thought is that philosophy is a very verbal activity, that philosophers who are good at philosophy are immersed in the world of words and not of images? Absolutely. I do think we have field biases, and that, and that certainly is one. To put it in a more friendly way, I think a lot of philosophical ideas would be very difficult to translate into imagery. So one of the biggest challenges for the empiricist view is abstract thought. How do you get these very lofty and complex ideas reduced down to a bunch of pictures in the head? So it's natural that people who work in such ideas professionally would be somewhat skeptical of the idea that we think in sensory terms. So take the word philosophy, obviously the Lockean picture where different people mean different things by philosophy has some traction, but how would an empiricist like you account for the abstract idea of philosophy? Do you just kind of accumulate different situations in which people have done philosophy in front of you or you've done philosophy? Well, there's both a kind of defensive and an offensive reply to questions like that. On the defense, I mentioned before that language of a public kind, English, for instance, is a resource that's available to the empiricist. So Barclay uh, made the observation, uh, Bishop Barclay, the classical empiricist, that we often do think in language, in public spoken language, but we can always unpack or cash out those linguistic terms, in sensory terms, sort of at the end of the day. We might carry out a very complex 
thought using language, just as the way we might carry out a very complex deduction using logic. But then if somebody says, what are the terms in this logic really referring to? At that point, we use our senses. So, I, you know, I think when you're dealing with a complex social practice, like the practice of philosophizing, of engaging in this kind of discourse, one of the things we can do is just simply point to the activity itself, which is an observable activity. Another thing one can do is, is point to the, the topics, the subject matter of philosophy. When we're talking about philosophy of mind, thinking about how the mind works, it's easy to imagine what it is to come up with a theory of the mind in a way that gets grounded in sensory representation. But the offensive move, the sort of tu quoque, is to say, look, rationalists, look, you believers in lingua mentis, why do you think you have the upper hand here? Because after all, to say there's no difficulty in explaining an abstract concept in non-sensory terms may itself be a kind of illusion. When you start to give the analysis, what you imagine is a bunch of mental symbols sort of interlocked in a kind of network. But these symbols are, they're abstract symbols that are not associated with anything visual or anything sensory, nor are they associated with public language. They're just these simple squiggles and squoggles in the mind. So a, a causal network of squiggles and squoggles has no meaning whatsoever. To explain how that's understood, how that's grounded, how that becomes intelligible and usable, how it becomes applicable in the world, requires that those squiggles and squoggles get linked to things that we can point to. And only with the senses can such pointing ever occur. Jesse Prince, thank you very much. It's a real pleasure. Mind Bites was made in association with the Meaning for the Brain and Meaning for the Person project, funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. For further information about the project, go to www.nicholasshea.co.uk. That's Shea, S-H-E-A. For more Philosophy Bites and how to support us, please go to www.philosophybites.com. Mm-hmm.